listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. So today is the first Sunday of a month and the first Sunday of the year and the first Sunday of a new decade. And so we are doing a series called Vision, in which we're going to be looking at the idea of vision throughout the Bible in kind of five categories. Here's kind of outline for the series. So we're going to look at vision for your future. That's today. Then we're going to talk about vision for the city, vision for your situation, vision for the church, and vision for others. So we want you to keep those dates in mind and make sure that you're here. Maybe there's some people that you want to invite, knowing these topics ahead of time, that you want to invite to be here, especially for one of those. But as we go through this series, we're going to be also seeking God for his vision for us, for our lives as individuals, and also for us as a church corporately. So let's begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. So Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, here at the beginning of this year, we want to dedicate this time to you. We want to dedicate our lives, all of our lives to you, but particularly this year, Lord. We ask that this would be a year of growing in the knowledge of you, of growing closer to you, Lord, and of growing in the areas where you would have us grow. And so, Lord, we dedicate this time to you. We give our attention to you. We ask that you would speak to us and cause us to grow in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of this message is A Vision for Your Future. Now, what I want you to do is if you would just go with me in your mind, take a little trip with me in your mind, in your imagination. Here's what I want you to do. Imagine your current age spelled out in numbers. You know, like uh, maybe somebody brings you balloons on your birthday that spell out the number of your age. Or maybe you have those candles on your cake, like we always do for our kids, that spell out the number of your age. Okay, so just imagine that number in your mind right now that you currently are. Now I want you to add five and go in your mind five years into the future. Five more numbers on there. I know for some of you that's a little bit scary, trepidatious, but I want you to do it. Just imagine five years in the future, whatever that number is, and I want you to envision you in five years. I want you to think about that and ask this, who will you be? Who will you be in five years? What will your life look like? What will be the same? What will be different? What will our church be like in five years? What will be the same? What will be different? Think about people you know and love. What are you praying for and hoping for that will be different in their lives in five years' time from now? You know, it's been said that most of us, what we do is we overestimate what can be done in the short term and we underestimate what can be done in the long term. We overestimate what can be done in the short term but we underestimate what can be done in the long term. Just this past week, uh, a friend of mine uh, who has never been, you know, a very athletic person, uh, what he did is he, he posted online, uh, this was on Friday, that for the past week, he has been working out and eating healthy every single day, and he hasn't lost any weight, and he's thinking about giving up because what's the point? He tried and it didn't work. 
And of course, people are commenting on there and saying, bro, it's been a week. Like, give it some time, okay? Just stick with it for a while. But, but isn't this our tendency, right, in our society today? Everything's so fast-paced. It's just add water, you know, microwave one minute. We expect things to happen quickly and immediately. And for many of us, our tendency is if we don't get what we want right away, we jump ship, we bail, we quit. As soon as something isn't fun anymore or we're not ecstatic about it or, you know, we tried and it didn't work like we hoped it would work immediately, uh, we quit. We change jobs, we change churches, we change relationships, we, we change everything, we change houses. And here's the thing. We often don't stick with things long enough to see significant impact. That, that's what our tendency is, even as a society. I was just thinking about my, my own self. I remember when I was 17, I determined I'm gonna learn Spanish, so here's what I did. I decided every day I'm gonna listen to Spanish radio for six hours a day, and by the, you know, it should take, I don't know, what, a week, two weeks, and I should be fine, right? I should be able to speak Spanish. Turns out that's not how it works. So I, uh, I listened to Spanish radio every day for like six hours, for two weeks, and all I got was a headache, and I learned like uh, I learned that they sing a lot of Celine Dion songs translated into Spanish. That's the other thing I learned. But I didn't learn Spanish, and then I gave up because, hey, I tried, and it didn't work. Now, now on the other hand, the next year, I moved to another country. I moved to Hungary, and over the course of 10 years, slowly and steadily, I did learn to speak absolutely fluently another language. And so, see, the thing is that we often underestimate what can be done in the long term. If we just stick with it, if we just wait until we hit our stride. And, and so we, we're so quick to bail on things before we're able to actually see significant impact in those areas. You know, I've met, again, so many people who said, hey, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me, so I, I quit. Or I used to go to church, but I quit. I, I, I tried small groups, but it didn't work for me, so I quit. I was in this ministry, and I didn't like something and so I quit. And one of the dangers we often face so often is right that we, we think too short term. That's, that's one of the big dangers that we face. We think too short term or too short sighted. And that's why here at the beginning of this year, right, everybody's thought is let's think forward. You know, we're on the clock now. 2021 is coming. And so we've got one year to see what we can do in one year. I want to say no. I want to say this. Let's think about bigger than that. Let's think not only more time, but let's think bigger vision. And let's think five years. Let's think five years. I, I want you to think about five years from now. Why? Because five years is enough time for significant change to take place. Five years is enough time that if you start now, you could be in a much better place spiritually or, or in any area of your life, financially, relationship-wise, in your marriage or with your kids or in your job. And here's the thing, though. It won't just happen automatically by you thinking it would be nice if it happened. It won't just happen on its own automatically. You could be in a different place five years from now, or you could just binge watch Netflix, and you could watch all the Netflix and neglect the things that really matter. So the question is this, what does it take, what does it look like to go from where you are right now to where you desire to be and where God desires you to be in five years from now? Here's what I know. I know this, God has a vision for your life. And that's what I want to talk about a lot today. God has a vision for your life. When he looks at you, he doesn't just look at where you are right now. And he's certainly not hung up on your past. When God looks at you, he also looks at the person he sees in you, the person he desires you to be, the person he knows that you can be in him and through his spirit's work inside of you. You know, Jesus told his disciples, he said this, 
I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide or remain, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And by the way, every year what we do is we, we choose like an idea or a concept for that year to kind of be a theme or, a, you know, characterizing what we desire for the year. And last year it was faith in motion. That's what we wanted to be about was faith in motion. We studied James and, and the minor prophets and things like that. Well, this year our theme is going to be abide. Abide and bear fruit. Those two ideas. Abide and bear fruit. And that comes from John 15, which is this thing that Jesus says that I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, abide, you know, remain on the outset, that sounds like a passive word, doesn't it? It sounds sedentary. It doesn't seem to imply movement. But I want you to know that this abiding is active. It's not passive. It's active, not passive. And so as we abide in Christ, we bear fruit. And later on in that same chapter, Jesus says, it is as you bear fruit, it is by bearing fruit, which happens as a result of abiding in Jesus, that is how you bring glory to the Father. That's how the Father is glorified through us. But notice what Jesus says here. I always found this, this phrase interesting. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? I mean, because I do lots of things. I could probably do lots of things apart from Jesus. I could brush my teeth. I can drive my car. I can make coffee apart from Jesus. There are billions of people around the world who live their lives apart from Jesus, and they do lots of things. So what's Jesus saying? Well, he's not just saying anything in general. He's saying, apart from him, you cannot do anything of true significance. You cannot do anything of lasting significance. In other words, uh, transformation, salvation, the things that really matter cannot be done apart from him. You can't do those things on your own apart from him. See, the Bible tells us there are three aspects to salvation. Three aspects to salvation. And they're, they're characterized by three words. Those words would be justification, glorification, and sanctification. Justification is used oftentimes in the past tense because it's a once and for all type of action. It's when God declares you righteous, right? Justified. It's past tense. So it's when you put your faith in Jesus and he saves you from the penalty of sin. So justification is about the penalty of sin. Glorification is when Jesus will ultimately one day save you in the future from the very presence of sin. That's glorification. That's also part of salvation. But then there's another part, and that's the part that happens in between. The justification and the glorification happens sanctification. Sanctification is God saving you from the power of sin as the Holy Spirit works in you and you set your life apart to God. So when the Bible talks about salvation, it's comprehensive. It's, it's all-encompassing, right? It's past, present, future. You are saved. You have been saved. You will be saved, and you are being saved. It's his work in you. Apart from him, you can't do this. That sanctification, that transformation. But here's the important thing I want you to see, and that's this. You have an important role to play in this process. You have an important role to play in this process. Your participation matters, and in our study today, we're going to look at the examples of some people whose lives were transformed as they took God's hand and they said yes to him and they took steps of faith and obedience and walked with him. And as we do that, what we're going to do is we're going to identify some key elements that were involved in their transformations. And as we do that, of course, we're seeking God's vision for our lives and for our church collectively. And here's, here's my first point. I've only got two points for you today. Point number one is this. Men and women of God 
are not born, they're made. They're not born, they're made. So in Mark chapter 1, this text that we just read a few minutes ago, we see Jesus walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is a large lake in northern Israel. It's created by the Jordan River. It's a natural lake. And the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is walking along the shores, and he's calling his first disciples. And the way he does it, Mark tells us, is that he walked up to people and he said, hey, come follow me. And then apparently they just dropped whatever they were doing and they followed him. Now, I just want you to put yourself in their shoes for a second because it is a bit strange, at least it seems strange, to be like, hey, you come follow me and then I just stop what I'm doing and follow you, right? Like if somebody walks up to you tomorrow at work, you're working, somebody walks in, says, hey, follow me. You're not going to follow that person, right? You might call security. You might call the police, depending on where you work, right? And if somebody pulls up to you in a parking lot in their car and says, hey, get in my car and come with me, again, you're going to call the cops, right? This is a weird thing to do. Um, but in Jesus' case, why? You know, it always strikes me. Hey, you, follow me. And they're like, all right, I'll just leave everything and follow you. Why would they do that? Well, see, in Jesus' case, you got to understand, these people already knew who Jesus was. How did they know who Jesus was? Well, about 40 or 50 days prior to this event, Jesus had had his big reveal, right? He had been baptized in the Jordan River just to this direct east of Jerusalem. Very prominent place. There's a guy named John the Baptist who happened to be Jesus' cousin. And he came and he said, I'm going to tell you who the Messiah is. One day, I'm going to reveal it to you. And then one day, Jesus walks down to the Jordan River when he's 30 years old. And John the Baptist says, here he is. This is the one. It was the big reveal. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, 40, 50 days have passed. And so news has spread of this event, right? People are curious. They've heard about Jesus of Nazareth, who John the Baptist said was the Messiah. And so when Jesus shows up now by the Sea of Galilee, people already know who he is. News has spread about this. And the reason they leave everything right away the way that they do is because it was a great honor in those days to be invited to be a disciple of a rabbi, especially if that rabbi was the Messiah. So of course it makes sense that you would drop everything and follow him. See, what Jesus was inviting these men into was what we might think of more in terms of a, a personal mentoring relationship, right? To be a disciple wasn't just to, you know, agree intellectually with the things that Jesus taught. To be a disciple in this sense was more like an internship. It's more like what we call today an internship. The purpose of that relationship was, you know, Jesus is essentially your boss, your leader, and the purpose of that relationship is that Jesus is going to teach you, and he's going to train you, and he's going to equip you to do his work. It's like an internship. It's a mentoring relationship. Now, there were a lot of people who followed Jesus during his ministry, but these 12 men were the closest to him by far. They were full-time disciples. They traveled everywhere that Jesus traveled and went with him, and they were handpicked by Jesus to do that. You know, these 12 are the ones who later become the 12 apostles. So whereas disciple means like a mentee, like a mentor-mentee relationship, apostle means something different. Apostle means someone who is sent, someone who's commissioned, someone who's sent out on a mission to do a particular task. So these men were tasked, they were handpicked, trained over the course of three years, and chosen to be sent out to carry out Jesus' mission in the world after his departure. Seven of these 12 men later go on to write portions of the Bible. 
seven of these 12 men. In the book of Revelation, it says that the names of these 12 men are written on the walls of the heavenly city. They're written on the foundations of the heavenly city. These guys that we see right now, these guys who were found fishing by the Sea of Galilee, they're a pretty big deal. And, and what Jesus was inviting them to was a pretty big deal. That's why they dropped everything and followed him. But who were these men? It's all, it's all the more impressive when you think about who they started out as. Well, both Matthew and Luke give us a full list of the 12 disciples. I've got that for you there on the screen as well as the verse where you can find those. But it's interesting to look through this list. Several of these men were fishermen. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, we see that when Jesus called them, he used this phrase, right? Follow me and I will make you become... And that's a key word, become. Here is who you will become with me. I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus had a vision for who they could become if they gave their lives to him. See, when Jesus looked at them, he didn't just see who they were. He saw who they could become if they put their lives in his hands. They were just simple fishermen. But I want you to think about who they became in less than five years' time. Who did they become in less than five years' time? They became apostles, leaders, missionaries who took the gospel to the ends of the earth. We know that some of them went to India. They went as far north as Armenia and the Caucasus. They went down into Africa. These men did those things. Simple fishermen, untrained, unlearned. These are people through whom God changed the world. And again, it's all so incredible when you consider who they were and who they started out as. Only one of these 12 men came from nobility or money, and that would be Bartholomew, who's also known as Nathaniel. The other 11 out of the 12, they came from blue-collar, working-class families. One of them was a tax collector, who, by the way, was the most despised position you could possibly have in society at that time if you were a Jew. Because tax collectors were considered to be complicit with the Romans. They were essentially sellouts and traitors. They were Jews who worked for the Romans, who were occupying Israel. And their taxes that they collected essentially supported and propped up the Roman occupation of Israel. So if you were a tax collector, you would have a lot of money, but you wouldn't have a lot of friends. Now, on the other hand, there's this other guy that sticks out to me who's called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Now, you might think, oh, zealous, it just means he was really excited. No, Zealot was actually a political party. The Zealots were kind of a political action group of far-right nationalists, right? Today, we would, we would equate them. You can think if you have heard of like Hezbollah in, in the Middle East. It's a similar kind of group, right? They want to drive out the occupying forces by using violence. And the Zealots were famous for assassinating Roman officials. This is kind of their gig. It's what they did. They would carry these hooked knives. Now, why were they hooked knives? Because they were, in, they were designed to cause maximum damage. So they would carry hooked knives with them under their coats, and then when they would see a Roman official in a marketplace or walking down a busy street, they would ambush that Roman official, stab them in the guts, and try to kill them. That's what they did. And so this is, Jesus picks one of those guys too, right? So a tax collector and a domestic terrorist, right? So here's Simon the Zealot, who's a person, he would have killed somebody like Matthew out on the streets, right? They were enemies. They were on different ends of the political spectrum. They had nothing in common. Neither of them was the kind of person who anybody in that day would want to be associated associated with. And yet Jesus calls these two men to himself. He gives them a new direction. He gives them a new future, a new destiny, a new identity, and a new vision for their future. On the street, these men would have been enemies, but yet 
in Jesus, they become brothers, they become together, they become apostles. And when you look at the disciples who Jesus chose, you know, you think he handpicked these people. He could have picked anybody. Why these people? They weren't the cream of the crop. They weren't the best in society, the best and the brightest. If these guys applied to work at a church today, none of them would get hired, except for Judas, because he was good at bookkeeping, right? Churches always need bookkeepers. So we would have definitely hired Judas, but the other ones, you're not educated, you can't read, you can't even do anything. What are your qualifications? You kill people, right? No, you cannot work at our church. And so we would not have hired these people. And yet Jesus looks at these people and he saw not just who they were, he wasn't hung up on their past, but he looked at who they could become in him. He had a vision for their future. He said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. See, men and women of God are not born, they are made. And there are two crucial steps in this process that we see in every case like this in the Bible. Number one, we see the call of God. So God initiates, but then secondly, and also importantly, we see our response. So God's call and our response. It's like two pedals on the bicycle. God's the one who initiates and we respond. It's a symbiotic relationship. God has a vision for your life. There are things he is calling you to do. And the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond? These guys, it says that they immediately left their nets and followed him. They left their nets and followed him. And as a result, their lives are transformed and their destinies are changed. Now, let me, let me show you another example. Come with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Abraham, if you've ever heard of him, he's also kind of a big deal. Abraham in Genesis, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's what we know about Abraham at this point in his life. He was an elderly man married to a barren woman, and he was a pagan. He was a pagan. We're told that in Joshua chapter 24, that Abraham was a pagan. So God shows up, and he gives this couple, these people, he gives them a very different vision for their lives, of what their future can be like. His vision for them is not that they will just be barren pagan people forever. He says, no, I want to make you a father and a mother of a great nation. And through you, I want to bless all people in the world. But there's a contingency. There's something that has to happen. And in order for that to take place, they have to go. That's the contingency. Go. You have to respond by following God's instructions and doing what God tells you to do. So when God looks at Abraham and Sarah, he doesn't just see a pagan old man and a barren old woman. No, he sees who they could become. He saw a patriarch and a matriarch. He saw the model of what it looks like for the rest of time, of what it looks like to walk with God in a relationship. And Abram ends up becoming the only man in the entire Bible who's given a particular distinction. Three times in the Bible, Abraham is called the friend of God. In Isaiah, God actually calls him Abraham, my friend, right? So it's not like people are putting that on Abraham. God said, no, no, no. That guy, he's my friend, Abraham. And notice this, God's vision for Abraham's life wasn't just about Abraham. That's the thing that sticks out to me. It was bigger than Abraham. There there were other people that God wanted to reach and bless through Abraham. In the same way, God has a vision for your life. 
But his vision for your life is not just about you. Do you realize that? His vision for your life is bigger than you. There are things that he wants to accomplish in you and through you. There are people he wants to reach in you and through you. His vision for your life includes you, but it's bigger than you. And again, what we see with Abraham is that God initiates and we respond. And here's what I think. And I think, and we don't know because it didn't happen, but I think this. What if Abraham would have ignored God's call? Here's what I believe. I believe that God would have still accomplished what God wanted to accomplish because God is sovereign. I love what it says in Psalm 115. It says, God is in heaven and he does whatever he wants. That's right. God is in heaven and he does whatever he wants. But here's what would have happened. Abraham would have missed out on the blessing. He would have missed out on getting to be a part of what God was doing. God would have raised up somebody else if Abraham would have bailed. But Abraham would have missed out on that special relationship of becoming the friend of God and walking with God in step by faith. Even though it wasn't always fun or easy, he got that blessing. In the same way, if God is calling and we don't respond, I believe he'll still accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But you and I will miss out on the blessing of getting to be a part of it. Men and women of God are not born, they're made. One more example for you. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, I love this story. It's the story of uh, David who would later become the king of Israel. And at this point in his life, he is hiding in a cave because the, the current king of Israel, King Saul, is trying to kill him, wants to kill him, has put a kind of a vendetta out for him. So David flees out into the wilderness and he's living and hiding in this cave. And during this time in the cave, it's interesting because throughout, uh, you know, when you study the life of David, you get to study the Psalms that he wrote during those periods of his life that give special insight into where he was at spiritually and mentally at that time. And so during this time when he's in the cave, David writes two Psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Feel free to check them out as we're talking. But here's the thing. Those Psalms tell us like where David was at spiritually and mentally. And what we see in those Psalms is that it was a very dark, desperate place. It wasn't a good place where he was at. He was questioning God. He was feeling like he was absolutely alone. He was very lonely. It was very dark. And here's what it tells us there. Uh, something interesting happens there in 1 Samuel 22. Here's David alone in this cave. He's depressed. He's sad. He's questioning, where is God? Why has God let this happen to me? And then some people start coming out to him. He's feeling lonely. He needs some companionship. And so then some people hear that he's in this cave. And so they start gathering to him at this cave called Adullam. Except look at the kind of people who come out to David in the cave. Here's what it says. Everybody who was in distress, everybody who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, I love that, right, gathered to David. Wait, is that good or bad? Like, because here's David in this cave. He's crying out to God, God, I'm lonely. I need some people around me who can come and encourage me and lift my, lift my head and lift my spirit. You know, some people who are strong in their faith, people who can speak encouraging words into my life and help me feel better. And so God sends him some people, except look at the people God sends him. People who are depressed, people who are unsuccessful, they failed at life, they're broke, and they're bitter in soul. We have a word for that today. We call these toxic people. And how often do you hear people say, you know what I need in my life is to, I need to be around less toxic people. Now here's David surrounded by 400 toxic people. And they're, they're broke, they're bitter, they're depressed. Some are running from creditors. They failed at life. 400 of them. And I wonder if David was thinking, man, I, I, 
should be careful what you ask for because maybe I was better off alone by myself rather than being surrounded by 400 losers. I need some encouraging people to come and encourage me and this is what God sends me, just a bunch of losers instead. Thanks a lot. But notice what it says there in verse two of 1 Samuel 22. It says that these people came to David and David responded how he became captain over them. He became the king of the losers. He became their leader, their captain. He had wanted somebody to come and minister to him and encourage him, but instead, God sent him people who needed to be ministered to by him. And as David ministered to those people, his own heart was encouraged. And I just want to tell you that that is always what happens when you serve God with the things he's given you, right? So many, so many times we tend to think, I need somebody to encourage me. I need somebody to build me up. And a lot of times what God will give you is he'll say, okay, here's an opportunity for you to teach the gospel to these kids. Here's an opportunity for you to contribute in your community group. Here's an opportunity for you to serve in this area, in this way. And as you are pouring out, you will be blessed as a result. In the end, you will find that you're the one who's built up and blessed as you pour out. See, David took these 400 men, these 400 losers, and he spent time with them, and he led them day in and day out for years. And this group of losers, you know who they become later on? They're called by a different name in 2 Samuel and in, in 1 Chronicles. They're called David's mighty men. They're called David's men of valor. See, we read about them later on in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And here's what it tells us in, in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Listen to this. Same guys. They were mighty. They were experienced warriors, experts with the shield and the spear. Their faces were like the faces of lions who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. It says in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 that these mighty men were filled with the Spirit of God. The same guys. They became famous for being filled with God's Spirit, for being courageous and skillful. The same guys, can you believe it? Those losers, 400 of them. That's who they became, but it's not how they started out. They became mighty men of valor, but they started out as people whose lives were an absolute mess. See, when God looked at those 400 men, he didn't just see who they were. He didn't just see broke, depressed people. You know what he saw is who they could become. He had a vision for their future. Throughout the scriptures, we see stories of people who weren't that amazing, but God took them and made them into something great. But here's the other thing. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. There was a process. In addition to the call of God, in addition to your response to God's call, there's something else that takes place in the meantime, and that is what we want to talk about next. That is the walk. So let's talk about our second and final point, which is the power of walking. So a few years ago, I went to the doctor. The doctor told me there's a history of diabetes in my family. He said, so you need to start working out. So I looked at all my options, and I decided to start running because running takes the least amount of time and it costs the least amount of money. So that's kind of the only reason I chose it. I didn't particularly like it. I was just like, whatever, I can just get it done and get it over with and it doesn't cost me any money. So I started running and since I started running, I've started to love it. But the other thing is, I now have a hard time walking because every time I'm walking somewhere, I'm thinking, well, I could just get there a little quicker if I just ran over there, right? See, the thing about walking is it's, it's really boring and it's not very glamorous and it's not exciting and it doesn't elevate your heart rate. It doesn't make you excited. It doesn't even make you breathe hard most of the time. And yet that in itself, the unglamorous nature of walking, the fact that it doesn't get your heart rate up, that's actually part of what makes walking so powerful. You see, a step is a small thing. Nobody's going to clap for you if you take a step. 
It doesn't take a lot of energy. It's not fast. It doesn't, you know, it's not flashy. But if you keep taking steps, one after another over time, you can cover great distances. You can climb mountains. I mean, that's how our ancestors got to North America, right? Those who walked over the Bering Strait, they walked. See, walking in the Bible is a really important metaphor that's used to describe what a relationship with God is meant to be like. It's used throughout the Bible, throughout the book of Genesis. The way a relationship with God is described is it uses this phrase, he walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Zechariah walked with God. What does that mean? Throughout the Bible, again, this word walk is used to describe a pattern of life. That's what it is, a pattern of life. Phrases in the New Testament like walking in the light, walking in darkness. It describes a pattern of life. And here's what walking implies. Walking implies continual, small actions that lead somewhere. Isn't that it, right? Walking is about continual, small actions that lead somewhere. And if you look at these three examples we've looked at this morning, how did these people become, how did they go from who they started out as to who they became? How were their lives transformed? How did they, how did God's vision, how was God's vision for their lives fulfilled? Here's how. Continual, small actions that led somewhere. See, the disciples spent every day with Jesus, taking in his teaching, observing him, following his instructions, applying his teachings. And as they did those mundane actions, day in and day out, they were absolutely transformed. As Abraham walked away from his pagan life, literally walking away from his pagan life, his home country, it probably felt tedious and painful and slow and like he wasn't really making a lot of progress one step at a time. For a while, I'm sure you could look over his shoulder and still see his hometown right there on the horizon. It felt like, am I ever going to make any progress at all? But then after a couple of years, he ends up all the way in North Africa. Why? Because you can make a lot of distance if you just keep moving, if you just keep putting one step in front of, in front of the other. Continual, small actions, putting one foot in front of the other, continually, consistently. Uh, pretty soon, his old life disappeared behind him. And within a few years, he was so far away in a new place that his whole, it was a whole new life, a whole new identity. As David had this band of 400 losers, they spent morning and evening in this cave of Adullam. David taught them and trained them. At night, they eat together. David's reading his psalms to them. Hey, guys, this is what I wrote as I poured out my heart to the Lord. He's encouraging them about God. And slowly, over the course of years, they stop being losers, and they become mighty men of valor, skilled men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That place, the cave of Adullam, it ceased to be what it once was. It became something else. It took on a whole new identity. In the beginning, you know, David saw this cave as a curse. Why am I here? I hate it here. I don't want to be here. But by the end of his time there, did you know David didn't want to leave? It says at the end of this section, a prophet came to David and said, David, you have to leave this place. And David was like, I don't want to. And he said, you have to. And by the time David leaves, he stops referring to that place as a cave, and he actually calls it a stronghold. This is my stronghold. This is my castle. This is the place where I am strong. And, and again, why? That place that he didn't want to be originally turned out to be a blessing. This was the time in David's life when he was closest to God, when he was the strongest spiritually. Ironically, it's later on in David's life when he's living in a palace, not a cave, that he ends up having his weakest time spiritually, where he falls and he's weakest. And how did David go then from strength 
at the cave to weakness in the palace the same way, one step at a time. It happened one step at a time. It didn't happen overnight. And my question for you today is this. Will you take God's hand and walk with him? Will you take God's hand and walk with him? Walking is about continual small actions that lead somewhere. And over time, they compound. You know, Albert Einstein said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He said it's incredible. If you just keep doing it, it compounds over time. I, I ask you to imagine five years in the future. See, again, we often overestimate what can be done in the short term, but we underestimate what can be done in the long term by continual small actions that lead somewhere. So often times, right, you and me, we're like my friend on the internet who worked out and ate well for one week and then gave up. We, we do something with a lot of intensity for a short time and then we give up because we're burned out or we don't see the changes that we thought we wanted to. We're looking for a quick fix, just add water, right? Microwave for one minute. If you go to this conference, if you read this book, it'll fix everything. And then we say, oh, well, I tried that and nothing worked and I guess nothing works. Here's why. You can thank Bruce Lee for this one. This is straight from Bruce Lee. Long-term consistency trumps short-term intensity every single time. Long-term consistency trumps short-term intensity every single time. If you want to grow as a Christian, here's the key. It's not glamorous. It's not just add water. Here's the key. Walking. Walking is the key. That's what the Bible says. Continually, small, steady, consistent actions that lead somewhere that lead to the right place. I want to challenge you to do this. I want to challenge you to commit. Be at church every Sunday this month. I want to challenge you, read your Bible every day. Did you know? Just two chapters. If you read the Bible, two chapters a day. You can read more if you want to, but read two chapters a day. You know what? In five years' time, you will have read the Bible three times. And how, think about how much knowledge you will have of God's word. Think about how well you will know it if you read the Bible three times in five years. Two chapters a day. Small, continual actions compounded over time. I want to challenge you to join a community group, and I want you to just commit to showing up. Just show up every time. Just show up, and at the end of the cycle, here's what will happen. You will have read the Bible more. You will have been prayed over more. You will have met more people than you would have if you had not joined a group in the first place. There was a study done in Australia a couple years ago looking at the effects of sunscreen. They had two groups of people. The one group of people was given SPF 50, which you think SPF 50, wow, that, that's effective stuff, right? And what they told the people is, every time you're about to go outside into the sun, you know, if you're going to have exposed skin, you're going to be out in the sun, then cover yourself with SPF 50 and uh, do that for five years. So over five years, they tracked these people. Now, the other group was told, you're going to use SPF 15. You know, like SPF 15, doesn't that actually make you more sunburned, you know? Like, so SPF 15, but here's what they told them. We want you to put it on every single day, whether you go outside, whether it's rainy, whether it's at night, we don't care. Put on SPF 15 every time you wake up, every single day, no matter what. So it is for five years. It took pictures of them, and then they examined those pictures with computers. And what they did is that the people who use SPF 50 showed kind of the normal progression of aging that you would expect over five years' time. But the people who used SPF 15 every single day, even when they didn't think they needed it, showed no visible signs of aging. Consistency trumps intensity every single time. See, we often use this phrase, don't we? We talk about going through the motions. Oh, I don't want to just go through the motions because going through the motions is a bad thing. Guys, going through the motions is only a problem if you're going through the wrong motions. 
right? Getting stuck in your ways is only bad if your ways are bad. If, you, if your ways are good and helpful, if they're, they're the right ways, then getting stuck in them can actually be the best thing that could ever happen to you. See, there's this thing, this set of actions, which historically in the church have been called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, they're taught in the Bible. Jesus himself modeled them for us. They're things like prayer and studying the Bible, giving, serving, taking communion, these things. And I've met a lot of people these days who say, I don't want to be religious. I don't want to be legalistic about those things. So I just do them sporadically, like whenever I'm, I feel like it. Now, I just want you to know, doing those things consistently, that's not legalism. Legalism is when you try to do something to manipulate God. But we're not talking about manipulating God. We're talking about a trajectory for our life. We're talking about actions that lead somewhere. What we're talking about is taking small steps continually that lead you somewhere over time. This is the nuts and bolts of how God practically transforms our lives and takes us from where we are now to where he desires us to be in the future. This is how God's vision for our future is met, one simple step at a time, over time. So whatever path you're on right now, the way to get on God's path is one step at a time. And over time, you find yourself further down the road. What if you devoted the next five years to pursuing God, to knowing him, to doing his will? God promised, if, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. How do you do that? What does that look like practically? Small steps consistently over time that lead you in that direction. Hey, look, here, here's the deal. God has a, has a vision for your future. Just like the 12 disciples, just like with Abraham, just like with David's mighty men, he has a vision for your future and who he would like you to become and how he would like to use you in the world for good and for his purposes. God is calling you to be a disciple, to be transformed, and to be used by him in his mission. How will you respond? You know, one of the things that's really popular these days is this thing called life planning, right? So life planning, they always tell you this. Imagine your funeral and imagine what you want people to say about you at your funeral and then work backwards from there and that should affect the way that you live and act today. But I want to tell you this. If we look through God's word, what we see is that the end of your life here on earth is not the end of you, which means that the, problem, the only problem with life planning is it's not thinking far enough out. See, we want to look beyond your funeral. We want to look to eternity. And we want to think backwards from there. Because of eternity, we want to live in light of eternity. And what that means is that if you have not yet given your life to God, if you've not yet said yes and embraced the gospel, do that. Because this life will be over and your soul will live on forever, somewhere. And we want you to live with God in heaven forever in his holy city. So receive the gospel. As we said earlier, salvation is, is being saved from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and ultimately from the presence of sin. But here's the other thing I want you to know, is that if you have put your trust in Jesus, you, you start with eternity in mind also, right? Because one day, you and I are gonna stand before God and we're gonna give an account of what we did with the time and the things that he gave us. Now, a lot of times people use that and it almost sounds like a threat, right? It almost sounds like an ultimatum, like, hey, one day you're going to stand before God. But I want to tell you, that should not be an ultimatum. That should be something that thrills your heart and excites you. You know what it's like? It's like kids having show and tell in kindergarten. We're going to get to stand before our father, not for punishment for what we didn't do, but for reward for what we did with what he gave us. We get to be like kids and say, look, here's what I did with what you gave me. And he's going to pat us on the back and, and embrace us, right? And that is an exciting thing to look forward to. What can I do with what he's given me to bring honor to him and to help other people? I don't know about you, but I long to hear those words of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
See, you and I don't have the power to transform our lives, but here's the good news. God has given us that power within us by his spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, if you have put your trust in Jesus and embraced the gospel, that same power resides in you by the Holy Spirit. And so by his power, we can do these things that he's calling us to do and we can become the people he's calling us to be. May it be so, amen. Lord, we thank you for these stories that we have of people whose lives you transformed. And thank you, Lord, that it encourages us that no matter where we've been and no matter where we're at, Lord, you have a future and a plan for us. And Lord, we just want to walk in that. We want to experience it. And Lord, we ask that your will be done in our lives. Lord, your will be done in our church. Lord, we ask for your will in our lives. Help us to be those who respond to your call, who take your hand and walk with you and go where you're leading us. And so, Lord, may this year be characterized by that, by giving all of ourselves to you. Thank you, Jesus, for putting your spirit inside of us and giving us the strength to take these steps. We pray that you would do so and that we get to experience these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.